Thanks for tuning in to the IGM podcast. We're so glad you've decided to explore God's word with us. We look forward to connecting with you in email at infointegritygm.com or online at our website, www.integritygm.com. We hope this podcast encourages you to grow in the knowledge of God through His Word. Be blessed. Blessings to everyone today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we're continuing in 2 Corinthians, and we're going to be covering what is designated as chapter 2. Again, remember, this is a flow of thought. The context continues Even though there's a chapter division, we're talking about the same flow of thought as we end at chapter 1. Let me read verse 1 of chapter 2. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. So that was the reason at the end of chapter 1 why he didn't come back quickly to visit them. He needed to give them some time and not to come back. He Uh, quickly, and uh, it was the witness to his soul to spare them. He did not want to see sorrow again, but he wanted to see joy come forth, and sometimes that takes some time when there's a heavy confrontation. So from his visit, there is some sorrow, and we're going to go through this. It involves an individual that I think is referring back to 1 Corinthians 5, a man that Paul orders to be put out of the church. And it probably wasn't done until Paul came there, and he came there for a quick visit, and it caused a lot of conflict, a lot of sorrow, a lot of hurt. You think about the family connections. You think about relationships. But it was something that needed to be done, and I believe in this chapter we see the right things that were done and a positive response from the man because he asked them now to approach the man in forgiveness and uh, to start ministering to him. But let's continue. Verse 2, For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? So it was not Paul's intention to bring this sorrow upon the church. And he wants to see gladness to come back from them. What's going to make him glad is when the sorrow is gone and the joy of the Lord is back within the church. This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all, that it was not his intention to bring sorrow. He wrote to them in, in advance, hoping that they would deal with it, but probably it wasn't dealt with until Paul got there. And then Paul had to deal with it as an apostle, the founder of this church in Corinth. And let's get to the specifics of this. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, Not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. When he wrote this letter, which I believe is 1 Corinthians here, it was with tears. It was because of his love for them. Remember in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not rejoice with unrighteousness, but it rejoices with truth. He is speaking the truth in love. 
He wants to see the right things done within the church because a little bit of leaven leavens the whole batch. And he understands if this is allowed to continue within the body of Christ, the whole church is going to be corrupted. Their morality is going to turn in the wrong way, and it's not going to be in holiness, but it's going to be based upon the Hellenistic world in which they were saved out of. He's writing this in anguish, with tears. He wrote that letter in this context, but because of his love for them. Now, Alan, if you don't mind, can you read verses 5 through 11 that is dealing with the individual that had to be disciplined? Yeah, and I just want to comment on those first. It's almost, you know, you see Paul, and and I think the translation and the way he writes, it's for me, it's a little hard to follow, but I see it almost, it's almost like if he's a father and these are his children, he really cares about him and loves them. And if, say, you only got to see your son twice a year, do you want those two times to just be you coming and just, you it's know. It's a great point. Yeah, nailing nailing him and, you know, getting on to him about this. And it's no, and I think you mentioned that at the on the last podcast for Chapter 1. You know, you want to let him have some time to reflect. You'd want to let them think about it, and you don't need to just come there and then confront. And that kind of shows his heart, how much he loves them. He doesn't want to just come because, you know, he is their gladness. It's a church he planted. It's a church he can say, you know, the Lord used him to build up this body. And you can imagine the joy that he gets out of seeing them grow in the faith and grow in Christ and grow in servants of God. And and he speaks about that in other letters. But, yeah, and it's incredible to see you know, to catch that emotion. And I think if you read through it quickly, you don't quite see that. But and he, he had to do this. Yeah. If, if you all will go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and see the instructions that he gives to them, this is something he had to do. And I really do believe the following verses is dealing with that situation. I cannot say 100%, but the terminology And if you put it together from a historical context of the first letter and what he wrote to them, I think that first letter he wrote to them was so powerful and what they needed to do, but he did it with anguish and with affliction from within his own heart, and he did it with tears because it was hard things that needed to be done by the Corinthian church if they were going to get things straightened out and glorify God within the city of Corinth. And he is a father, a spiritual father. And these are spiritual children uh, that he has brought up in the faith. And now they've been stagnated because of so many issues within this body of believers. And uh, so he wrote this letter, not just quickly. I can see him writing this, crying over it, praying over it, asking God, give me exactly the right words to speak to these children of mine, spiritual children that have to deal with this. And any time as a father you deal with your own children with something that has to be dealt with, you cannot put it off because you know down the road it is going to be something so harmful for them. You have to deal with it because you love them. And you do it. If you don't love them, you just allow it to continue. And then 20 years down the road, you see the consequences of not dealing with it. And this is the context, like you're saying, Alan, of what Paul did in that first letter he wrote to the Corinthians. Chapter 2, verse 5. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment inflicted 
by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgave anything, I forgive also. For indeed what I have forgiven, I have forgiven anything. I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Can you read that again? Verse 10. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And in verse 11, Satan is mentioned here, and Satan is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So the one that has caused sorrow really isn't Paul. It's this individual that has, to some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you, he has caused sorrow within the whole church at Corinth. Even though Paul had to deal with it and he brought the sorrow, but it is this individual that has truly caused sorrow. It seems like that this individual has had some point of repentance, and that is the whole context of why he wants him kicked out of the church. He was kicked out or dealt with by the majority. So the church, as a majority, dealt with this, whatever the situation is, and it brought sorrow on the whole church. But the sorrow is coming from the individual who had committed the wrong acts. Verse 7, so that on contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So this individual, can you imagine if this is dealing with 1 Corinthians 5, and you have come into the grace of God, but then you got wrapped up into a lifestyle of sin, and now you're kicked out of the community of faith, and the excessive sorrow... It would be almost like your life is over with. I mean, my own people of the same faith has kicked me out of the church. What do I do? And there seems to have been some repentance that takes place because Paul says, forgive and comfort him. Now it's time to embrace him. We kicked him out. If this is the context, we kicked him out. Now he's repentive and he's doing the right things. Forgive him and comfort him. It's a time to embrace him. Verse 8, wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. That would not be spoken by Paul unless there was repentance. If he's still living or sleeping with his father's wife, no, we would not embrace him. We would not show him love because love does not rejoice with unrighteousness. It rejoices with the truth. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Verse 9, for to this end also I wrote you, so that I might put you to the test. Remember, in that chapter, he is telling them what to do. I put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. As an apostle, the founder of the church, he's telling them what they need to do. Verse 10, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, 
for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Yes, we're going to walk in forgiveness. We're going to embrace this one and love this one as he has repented, and we are to bring him back into right fellowship with the other people of faith. That was the whole goal of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And Satan is mentioned here, and he's mentioned in that chapter as well. So for me, it's dealing with that situation, but say it's not that specific situation. It's still the same principle. Someone has caused sorrow. Something had to be dealt with. And now is a time of forgiveness, a time of comfort, of embracing to bring him back into the fold. Yeah, and I, it's interesting. I never looked at this word, you know, when, when Paul talks about the majority in 6. That means there was a minority, that this was a division. There was conflict. Yeah, there was a conflict. And so not only the sorrow on this person was inflicted, but I'm sure there were sympathizers or people that said, that's not right. You know, you're just going to put this person out on the street. Um, You know, other people were suffering because of this sin and this thing that had to happen. Um, So, yeah, it just really was this this ripple effect of, of... you know, contention and sorrow in the church, not only for the individual, but for the church itself. So, you know, and that even makes a little more powerful what Paul talks about in the first part of the chapter as to why he doesn't just want to come right back and go right into something like that because you did have a a dissension because if there's that majority, there were others that didn't necessarily maybe not agree or were upset about what had to happen. Um, So, you know, you kind of want to let that heal a little bit um, in a lot of ways, I think. Yes, and let's talk for a moment. Some of the conflict that the minority of people that would say this is the wrong thing to do, Paul's in the wrong and we should not follow his instructions, but the majority came together and said, yes, we need to do this. Today, people will say, well, if you kick him out, he's going to be so angry he'll never come back. That is one thing that I hear all the time. Another thing I hear is, that's not the love of God. Who are we to kick someone out? Yet, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you need to understand God's love is different from man's understanding of love. And also, for those that would say, don't kick him out because he'll be so angry he won't want to come back, need to understand we don't compromise with sin And if we allow it to continue, it will infect the whole church. And for the person's good, we have to kick him out. He has to be confronted with his sin. This is wrong. This is not of God. Who are you going to follow? Are you going to embrace Christ or embrace the world? Because this is not representative of Christ to sleep with your father's wife. And again, that probably what happened is a... A man lost his wife, an older man in that culture, to find a new wife, sometimes is much younger. He has children, and probably he had a young wife that was near the age of his son, and a relationship developed, and the church knew about it. So you have to deal with it. Yeah, and you think about you know hurting the person, but you also think about the church being hurt, letting that happen, but then also think about the future of people that are going to be looking from the outside and maybe are thinking about coming to Christ or are thinking about following Jesus. Well, this goes on. They're no different than the, the no other Corinthian, the Corinthians that are doing all these things with sexual immorality and pagan. So, yeah, it's a, a really godly, greater good concept. You know, if this one individual 
won't choose to follow, yeah, he has to go out and then God can bring them back. It seems like he did with this individual, if the same one or, or not, but whichever individual this is, Paul's telling them to forgive him, love him, restore him. him. Yeah, and that's and I think that's something that, as you mentioned, people that say, well, he's going to be so angry with God. That's not, we don't know that. You know, God knows the heart and he knows how to deal with people personally on those things. And we have to do what's right by the word of God and by what Paul has taught us to do, you know, in First Corinthians. And like he's a little leaven, leavens the whole bunch, you know, all of those things that were given. And as hard as it is, and as hard as this was, it seems like for Paul, he knew this was the right choice over tears and prayer and had to make that hard call. And I think that's that's something in life that just doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem easy, but that's what we're called to do, especially if you're a leader you know, in a church, in a congregation. You have to make those tough choices sometimes, but it's really not only for them, it's for them, it's for the body that's there, but it's also for people that are could come to Christ that maybe are looking at the situation. You know, what are they going to do? Why are they different than the outside world? What makes them different as Christians? And that really hits home. I like how you talked about the witness to the people outside of the body of Christ, and that's something that we have to remember if there's not any difference in the lives inside versus outside, we really have lost our witness to be able to really share with them the true gospel. And we have to keep mind, uh, mindset about that at all times. Everything that we do, we have to think about our witness to the world and how we do it and what we represent. And as far as thinking about a father with his children— Say I had seven children, and one of them was acting badly and was hooked on drugs. And if I allowed it to continue within the home and I didn't deal with it properly and I allowed drugs to be within the home, I've got to think of the big picture. I've got to think of my other six children. I've got to think that they're around drugs and alcohol and things that could destroy their lives and the influence that would come. And for my love for the family and having the big picture and also my love for my son that's a drug addict, I cannot allow him to bring that into the house. And the only chance he's really going to have, I believe, if I have tough love with him, I have godly love, and say to my son, that will never be in our house, and if you bring it in here, you're not allowed in this house. And by doing that, I'm putting that son in a position he has to deal with it. I'm no longer really part of my father's family. I'm not in fellowship with them. I cannot come home and have fellowship unless I deal with this sin in my life, and I've got to get help. This is some of the mindset. It's a godly mindset that Paul has that maybe the minority in this church could not understand. Now, let's talk about the acts of discipline as well. From what Jesus says, if you see someone in sin, you go to them privately. And if they don't repent, you take two or three with you. And then if that does not bring about repentance, bring it to the whole church. The whole church has to understand what is going on in order to make a decision and discipline to be administered to this one who has committed sin. And they're not repentive of it. So this is what we're seeing here. The church, the majority, had to make a decision this was not of God. We're not in fellowship with this individual. And apparently, repentance took place, and now it's a time of forgiveness, 
of comfort, of really going back to this individual and building them back up in the faith. And that's what we see here. And I believe it's something that's beautiful. However, it caused conflict, and there was sorrow, and there was hurt. And Paul is saying, I didn't come back quickly. Yeah, and just last point on this, I, I just reminded of that verse, and you'll know where it is. I'll paraphrase it, but the, you know, it says God corrects the ones that He loves, and that's a principle that you know I think can go. The pendulum swings far. People, you know, will look at God as a taskmaster sometimes, and then other times you just say God's all about love, and He would never do anything that would hurt. But it's you know when you're in the middle there and right where God wants you to be with it, He's He's going to correct you if He loves you, and any father is going to correct you because He knows what's best and He loves you. And you yes. know it's it's a punishment with love, but like you said, it's also with restoration. And even in the first chapter, it's with comfort. You know, some you know God is yes. the God of comfort and mm-hmm. mercies. It says in that first chapter right. of Second Corinthians. Yeah, I think you're talking about a son in whom the father he, a son in whom the father loves, he disciplines. Yeah. And a father that really loves his son will discipline him. If he doesn't love his son, his children, he does not discipline them. And we see that he is writing this in love, verse 4, back to the Corinthian church. Now let's continue, verse 12. Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord... I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. And I believe it's from Macedonia that he's writing this second letter, 2 Corinthians. And you see Paul's love for the brethren, the brethren, I should say. Not finding Titus was a big deal to him. It was a it was something that was of a concern to him that he did not have Titus at this time. And when we're going through times of conflict, we need each other. So I want to read that verse 13 again. I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother. Some people, when they're going through conflict, they get isolated and they get by themselves. But Paul was not that individual. He's going through conflict. He's had a lot of things going on. And he wanted Titus, his brother, he wanted some time of fellowship with him. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Now, this sweet aroma is going to come forth, and it's going to be in a way that probably you and I would not describe it in this way, but let's look at it. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So the aroma that goes up is not just for those who are being saved, but also for those who are perishing, but it is giving people an opportunity to respond to the gospel. It's also an aroma, a sweet aroma unto God when we preach to those that are rejecting the gospel because we are being faithful to take this glorious gospel even to those that are rejecting it. Let's read verse 15. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? We are not adequate for these things, but look at chapter 3, verse 5. He answers the question. 
Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. It is God that brings forth that within our lives. Verse 17, For we are not like many, corrupting or peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. We're coming with honesty and sincerity by God's grace. We're coming in holiness. We're preaching the gospel. Some are receiving, some are rejecting. It's an aroma in both situations that are going up to God because we are faithful to God. And every time that we are faithful to God, that we're doing what God has asked us to do, there is an aroma, a sweet aroma that is precious unto the Lord. And that's the picture that I'm getting here. It's not that people are always coming to faith because we preach the gospel to people that are perishing and we preach it to those that are receiving, those that are being saved. But what is important is that we are preaching the gospel and it is an aroma unto God. It is a sweet aroma unto God. Yeah, I like that wording, you know, and like you said, it's probably not something we'd say or we say these days, but it just comes to mind, you've they've studied this, but the your most powerful memory comes from smell, you know, more than feeling, taste, hearing. When you smell something, you remember a certain time, and it's like this is people that are coming and, and coming to Christ and, and going to be with us with the Lord Jesus when he comes. They're remembering these things they're seeing, and then also the people that are not, they're going to remember. Scott Martin did this, and I remember when he was walking in holiness and in God, and, and it's just something they're going to see, and that's, that's powerful to think about how the Spirit and how God can operate through us as an aroma, as a fragrance. Yes, and and think about this, Alan. You go through decades of preaching and teaching and sharing the good news, and people are rejecting, but it's an aroma, a sweet aroma unto God. Yeah. And so it's going from death to death, but you are being faithful unto God, and you're going through persecutions and sufferings through all of that many times, but it's a sweet aroma unto God. Yeah. It's not our responsibility to bring people to Christ. One man plants, another man waters. It is God that brings the increase. This is what Paul says. And so we know that our adequacy is in God. But everything that we're doing, if we're doing it with sincerity of heart and holiness by the grace of God, it is an aroma unto God. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that our lives will be a sweet aroma, that our lives will produce the things that honor you. And Lord, let us just be found faithful to do what is right, to live a life that is a testimony of your grace, to live a life of holiness, to live a life of honesty from the heart, sincerity of the heart. And Lord, let us be about your business preaching this glorious gospel, sharing it everywhere that we go through our life and through our words. And Lord, I just pray that we will be found faithful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd like to learn more about IGM or have any questions about this podcast, feel free to reach out to us at info at integritygm.com and connect with us on Instagram at integrity underscore global and Facebook at integrity global missions. If you like our podcast, please share it and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed day.